I don't want a pickle, just want to ride on my motorcycle. Okay, this is the Nokomoto Podcast. Hello and welcome. This is episode number 145. I'm your host, Moto G. Pete, and with me is your other host, Swigging. Yep. Coming to you from Nokomoto Headquarters, which is also... Moto One Podcast Network Studios. They didn't really let us back in so much as we just forced our way back in. The president was not expecting me. I hid behind a ficus. And after he went into his office, which has three uh, glass walls, and I, I, I ran up behind him as he was... Well, every, whenever he goes into his office, the first thing he does is he walks up to the shelf that he's got, which has a whole bunch of like, I don't know, like baseball cards and some other shit on it. And like, he's got like a VHS collection, collection of like weird anime shit or whatever. He's such a fucking dork. Anyway, he goes in and just looks at it. So while I did that, I unloaded like a whole tube of red Loctite into the door. And then I just sat there spreading my bare ass cheeks all over the glass around his office. We're fucking back, baby. So anyway, um, right. So anyway, uh, what are we going to talk about in this episode, Swigs? We are going to talk about some more got, movie scenes. We've got more motorcycle movie scenes we're going to talk about. Of course, we're going to do Best Worst Bike. We're going to catch up on round two of MotoGP. And I think that'll do it. Well, we also have an update on the YZ. That's right. Yes, I am the YZ Whisperer. Uh, well, let's start with that. How about that? Let's get that out of the way. So this is only a couple days, three or four days from the last time we recorded, but there's still been developments, right? So the last time we gave, uh, we were talking about how we went to the track and we, I, I had done a bunch of shit to Cam's bike and we kind of reassembled everything at the track and it was running great. Your bike still had a little, had a little bit of a miss in it still. And I just couldn't let it go. And it was really bothering me. We we had a couple theories. We had a couple things that we were thinking of doing. But I just none of it really sat right with me. We decided we were going to completely tear down the carb again. And your bike has a... Well, it's not an original carburetor. It's, it's a copy... It's a pretty good copy, but it's a most likely Chinese of some description copy of a KN FCR 38 carburetor. Yeah, it's some sort of reproduction. It's not an original KN. Right. And it's very, very close. And I've heard that people complain that these things don't really work very well. So I thought, well, we've still got the original carb. Let's pull all the seals and everything out of this and let's use this original one, which conveniently has already been ultrasonic cleaned for us. And that would seem like a very good way to do this. But I don't, it just, it's something just didn't sound right. And I thought I'm going to go through everything again. I read through every part of assembling these in the manual and I was watching some YouTube videos and 
I came across a couple interesting things. So first off, there's a, a, a these are for one single carburetor. This is as complicated as carburetors get. There's all kinds of crazy shit going on in this carburetor. But I found a couple parts that people commonly put in incorrectly. And I found out another interesting thing. Frequently, rebuild kits for these things come with the wrong parts. And I thought maybe this carburetor had some incorrect parts in it. Because when I went to set the float height on it last week, it was way off. It had been set wrong by someone. But also, it didn't have the right float needle in it. Right. And I got the right float needle in it because, well, we have like a collection of float needles. And... I, I was looking into it, and apparently a lot of these carbs uh, ship with the wrong needle needle as well. And so I pulled that out and looked at the tiny stamping on it, and it is, in fact, the wrong needle. And by wild chance, we had the correct needle as well. <laughs> also, I noticed that your hot start was fucked up. Which was probably even even before the needle and even before the front piece of the slide being put on upside down, even before the um the the um the the float height being off, I think that your hot start was at least cracked because you don't remember it breaking. I don't remember it breaking. It was probably broken the whole time, but because remember it just had that like two threads that we could screw it in or out. I'm not entirely sure. I think that I broke bet it was the last time I put it on, but I could be wrong. I think it was broken off inside the whole time and it was leaking leaking air basically i bet i bet it was not seating that that plunger on the end of the hot start was not seating and creating that um air leak basically uh but uh, yeah on top of that there are these other issues with it there are multiple things and i got them all fixed and i i i'm really proud of figuring out it was the wrong needle in that carburetor i don't know what i what made me zero in on double checking that? But yeah. Well, and then I found a video of someone explaining that the re that the moose rebuild kits for these things frequently come with the wrong needle too. And then I was like, aha, totally vindicated. This is exactly what's going on. And so anyway, I rebuilt the whole thing like at like midnight. Um, yeah. Last night, wasn't it? Yeah. Right. And so I woke up early this morning at like eight, which was as early as I dared. And I was just kickstarting this thing on my front lawn. And uh, I, I set everything perfectly to the manual, except for the air screw, which I just turned out twice. We've got to dial that in a little bit, but it ran perfect. And I started bombing it up and down the street and, uh, and around the, uh, the, um, 
oh my gosh, what's the name of the park called? Island Grove um, around the corner. And it's it's fantastic. So we now have three perfectly running YZs. I am the YZ Whisperer. I'm just declaring it. <laughs> but the 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 great part is now is we're on to uh, the trailer. We're getting our race trailer together now. So tomorrow morning I will get the that titled. And then oh, we got to work on just doing awesome things. We're going to build a table into the side of it. We're going to build an awning into the side of it. We're going to get the uh, custom tool rolls made for the inside of the doors. We're going to put hangers for all the gear in there. Um, we're going to see if this cooler that you've bought fits in there. This is going to be the best uh, an eight-foot box trailer can be for, for the dirt bike track. And then we need to get some super stupid stickers with our names and race numbers on them. Uh, I, th- I, think we, I think we need a big vinyl sticker that says PBR. Um uh, for 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 the initials, you know, and racing, but it needs to be like PBR, um, and so, and uh, and wheelie school. It needs to say on the side of the trailer. Um, cool. So that's the update. There, we'll let people know how things go as soon as we get the kids into the track and all of that. So after that little quick update, I think it's time to go into best worst bike. Let's do it. Okay, so here it is. Best worst bike in the world this week. Each week, Swiggs and I each pick a different motorcycle. One's going to be the best bike in the world. One's going to be the worst bike in the world. But just for this week, not all time, okay? You can get worked up about it, or you can just sit back and just let it happen. And if you're upset, then just wait until that feeling turns into something else. Or you can send emails to contact at nokamotopodcast.com. But when you do, remember, just like my neighbors, when they opened up their windows as I was revving a dirt bike at 8 o'clock in the morning on the front yard, as they opened their windows and yelled, "They hey, there's no crunk in motorcycles. So, Swigs, you have best bike in the world this week yes are you ready to reveal it i am okay and the best bike in the world this week is the 1983 z 1100 i love this bike um oh wait no this is a different version that i'm thinking okay um so this is kind of the four-cylinder CBX beater. Uh, it's kind of in that class. It's the you know the. This is more along the lines of like the XS eleven hundred and the GS eleven hundred. Yeah, this was a big drag race bike back in the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this this is around the time that we had um, the CB nine hundred F. The CB1000C, the GS1100, the XS1100. And this was, well, by by my standards, uh, the best one. This is around the time, you know, everyone was built was kind of blowing up the UJM into this kind of cruiser competitor. 
especially as the inline four motors were getting really good. So if we were to compare this to say the CB1000, this has 20 more horsepower, 20 more foot pounds of torque. It's 60 pounds lighter and it has the same air suspend air assisted suspension setup front and rear. So I want to say the CB1000 was around 80 horsepower. Is this 100 horsepower? Uh the CB1000 was 89 horsepower. This is 109. Oh, that high. And, and so this is going to be sitting around 80 foot pounds of torque as well then? Uh 70. 70. Okay, well still. Um that's very impressive numbers for 1983 air-cooled well, motor. Yeah, so it has legitimately an extra 100 cc's of displacement on it. Uh, Is it a true 1100 then? It's not like 1026 or something? It's like 1096 or 86 or okay. something like that. gotcha. It's pretty legit as far as the Japanese bikes go. Um. And rather than being a fairly square motor, this is actually an this is an oversquare motor by quite a decent amount. It's not like crazy sport bike. Well that that explains the the sixty or seventy foot pounds of torque only and the and the ten the hundred and nine. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was expect yeah, I would have expected more like eighty and then like ninety nine horsepower if this was a square motor. Mm-hmm. And this also kind of plays more into its own strengths. I mean, well, one of the reasons why it's a little bit lighter than the CB is, for one thing, it doesn't have that insane um, transfer case where you can switch gears. It's not the 10-speed nonsense. In fact, um, this bike kind of keeps playing to its strengths. So it's a five-speed. But the fifth gear is not an overdrive. It's very close to one-to-one, -one, but it's not quite there. Which makes sense because you don't really want to do any kind of touring on this. It's meant to just be this kind of cruiser style. Not really a hot rod, but a little bit of a, 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 bit of a show off rather than being this big tour or a super sporty bike it it knows where it belongs yeah it's actually it's not the drag bike that i thought it was there's some there's a version of this that's chain drive but this one is specifically shaft drive and it's there's 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 one there's a bike that's so similar to this that's chain drive that was the big drag race one um mm. I'm trying to remember what it was. But anyway, yeah, yeah. It's interesting that they went with the shaft drive for I guess this was kind of these years was a big moment for shaft drive, wasn't it? It really was. All all the Jap a lot not all of them, but a lot of the big Japanese cruisers went to shaft drive around this time. Your gold wings, your CB nine hundred and one thousands, this bike, um are Magna's shaft drive? Uh, anyway, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of 
early metric cruisers bikes that are that are shaft drive like this well i think it was kind of the japanese weren't really into belt drive and they wanted to kind of do a little bit of a one-up on harley because the all of these bikes were kind of starting to encroach into the the harley davidson space with a much much bigger displacement yeah, you know, much heavier, longer wheelbase. They were really kind of starting to step into that territory. I don't, in eighty three, it hardly gone to belt drive yet. Uh, I go to they did, didn't they? Um, Am I misremembering? Well, the Sturgis model, I think, was the first belt drive Harley. Um, what's the years on the Sturgis? Let's actually Google something for once as we're talking about it. Oh yeah, eighty-one Harley went belt drive. Okay, yep. You're. Vindicated. I don't know why I doubted you. Okay, yeah. Things that were not chain were heavily in vogue. Cool. Well, and I guess the the Japanese must have thought like, well, I mean, anything over a hundred horsepower is so excessive. I, you know, a hundred horsepower was still a, a a stupid number at this time. Yeah, I, I mean, because a lot of a lot of six hundred sport bikes really weren't making a hundred horsepower until like two thousand. So in eighty three. These these air cooled motors making a hundred nine horsepower of the crank that's a big deal. This is this is kind of a, a Hayabusa of its day kind of thing. Yeah. Um, as I look through pictures, this thing comes in a lot of different flavors throughout the years. I'm seeing several different seats, several tank designs. Some of this may be just customized things that I'm seeing. Um, well, this is the bike they made the the Spectre edition out of. Okay. Um, I the only reason I I brought it up is because uh, one of our serial emailers reminded me of it. Ah. Uh, but yeah, I. Oh, there was a GPZ 1100. That's the chain drive version. Okay. Mm. Was that this motor? I think so. Uh, there's definitely... No, there's definitely... If it wasn't the GPZ... Well, it depends on where you are when it's called, I guess. But yeah, there's def there is definitely a chain drive version of this that a lot of people used for drag racing. Cool. Um so yeah, there's one that kind of has that 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 super classic um like Eddie Lawson type look to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This was they raced a lot of these. There were I the eleven hundred displacement was super popular for a while. I guess it's kind of coming back now with I mean, the Africa Twins and eleven hundred. What are their eleven hundreds being made right now? Are they still making the CB eleven hundred? I don't think so. <laughs> I I don't know why that bike was made to begin with. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, 
I kind of wonder why this bike isn't more remembered because the the KZ one thousand is forever cemented in everyone's memory because of chips. And I guess maybe because it's kind of closer to the Z1, it's kind of a more overweight pedestrian version of the Z1 in a way. Yeah. Um, but the 1100 like doesn't really seem to get brought up as much as, as, uh, as the KZ bikes. Hmm. Yeah, uh, as I'm looking through, I think the version in the U.S. was just called like the the Z1100R. I think that might be right. Someone do better Googling than me and let us know next week. Uh, did, um, oh my, we we need to talk about the Super Eighties Dash on this thing. This is a the double the, square gauges. Yeah, well, double square. Not only that, what is this little thing that I can't tell what it is? There's, hmm, what is the? I need to, I need to find this picture. Okay, tell me what you think this is. Oh my gosh, work. Okay. What what is that that little thing there like to the right of the of the key? I can't even read what this says in this shitty picture. Uh isn't that the trip meter? That's that's the odometer, isn't it? Oh, you're right it is. That is a huge odometer. Yeah. I love in this picture that someone's put a, a Harley Davidson aftermarket uh, handlebar clamp on it, too. But not only that, the fuel gauge is gigantic as well. Yeah, it is. Yeah, this, this is a. It's just gigantic all around, to be honest. Yeah. So we got these huge double gauges with a gigantic fuel gauge in the middle, a. Uh, oh, I see what it. Okay, so we got the odometer on the bottom, a trip meter on the top. I, of course, people have known. What is this knob? Is that choke? No. Uh, choke would be on the handlebar on this. There. I don't know. We we talk about it a lot on these bikes. I I love going through and looking at what these companies thought the future of gauges and everything was going to be. And I love these bikes that got it wrong. Just put everything up there in a really awkward way that just doesn't make any sense today. And this bike doesn't disappoint. There's nothing, there's nothing overtly insane about this setup, but it is charming how it's just, it's not really right. Is it? No, I do love the integration of the turn signal of all the lights into the speedometer. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. On the yeah, <laughs> there's these two little orange lights inside the gauges. So one's on the tack and one's on the uh, on the 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 speedo, and they're they're well, also the, the oil the oil and the neutral light are also yeah they there. are in there too there's oil neutral and there's one what's the blue one mm. high beam 
Oh, yes. Yeah, they're all inside the dials. So, yeah, when you turn on your, your blinker, your speedometer has a little light in the corner that blinks. But it's fascinating how they tried to integrate it all into the two gauges. And it's still fucking huge. Well, yeah, but then there's also this other giant console piece that it's all mounted on top of. It's like if you were trying to make it all so compact, why this huge monstrosity of an odometer as well? I don't know. Yeah, no one does. It it was just the 80s and it was bike design. Uh, actually, I'm falling in love with these little lights inside... The gauges. I mean, I can definitely see why this didn't catch on because if these bulbs go out or whatever, you've got to take all this shit apart, and that's a colossal pain in the ass. I mean, this is something you could do today and make it very reliable, and you probably don't need to touch the thing for 20 years. But back then, it was definitely not that way. <laughs> Um. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I should put up two pictures. I'm, I'm probably not going to, but I'll try to remember to put up two pictures of this bike. One of them being these these lights inside the gauges. This is wonderful. Okay. Cool. Um. Yeah, I'm thoroughly impressed. This is this would not be a bad little bike to pick up because. I'll bet this was overlooked in history because it really doesn't fit the UJM or Cafe Racer kind of aesthetic that we expect these kinds of bikes to fit into. These early 80s bikes look like 70s bikes more than they look like 80s bikes. You know, when we think of 80s bikes... Most of the time, we're actually thinking of early 90s bikes. Yeah, everyone talks about, oh, everything went all square in, in, the, in the 80s. And yeah, there were plenty of square headlights, but I really feel like it's the early 90s and very late 80s when that really takes hold. These, these, these early to mid 80s bikes, I feel, are just sort of 70s bikes with anything approaching modern gizmo gadgetry that they could squeeze into them. Right. Mm -hmm. They, by, by 1983, just everything's dual overhead cam. Dual overhead cam has become not crazy expensive. So just any, any engine that they can make dual overhead cam, they are because everyone is impressed by dual overhead cam. And if your bike isn't, well, You know, the CB750 was dual overhead cam. Um, Everything Honda was was dual overhead cam by this point. And, you know, Kawasaki wasn't going to be... Well, no, Kawasaki hit the ground running first with dual overhead cam with the Z900, didn't they? Uh, I do not know. I want to say the Z900 really led the charge on that. I could be wrong. We need like Phil or Miss Emma to correct me. I'm not going to bother double checking. I'm not going to fact check that. It was very close. So, I you know, in a way, this this is very typical. But yeah, it really does kick the shit out of the CB900 and CB1000, doesn't it? 
It does. Well, especially like even even the uh, the XS eleven hundred was only ninety five horsepower. Well, I say only ninety five. It was still a shit ton of horsepower for the time. Um, I think the GS eleven hundred had similar numbers, but the GS eleven hundred suffers from being is fucking the- horrendous. Well, just hideous. Yeah, it definitely embraced the 80s styling very early on. It, I think the GS1100 was trying to look like the CBX. And for how much everyone loves the CBX, a lot of them are cosmetic disasters. The first year of it, I like. But by the end of the CBX, it quickly was the most 80s thing ever, which in on some days of the week is a great thing. And on some days of the week is a bad thing. I like that the Z1100 retains a very 70s look. It's got a stepped up seat, but it's not... It's not crazy stepped up like a lot of the KZ series was getting by this time. Uh, the It still has side panels that are not just crazy shaped. They're just normal. It's got, it does have those weird chrome covers on the, uh, the airbox. I don't know why that was such a popular thing to do. Those little chrome covers on the side of the, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Uh, that popped up on Hondas. That popped up on that popped up on everything around the early '80s. I don't get it. This bike suffers from it too. Um, I like how proud this bike is of the dual overhead cam as well. I mean, obviously, it was the big thing. It was the cool thing at this time. And whilst this engine isn't the best looking engine I've ever seen, there's lots of parts of it that are very lacking any sort of design it's kind of for something with so many round parts it's very square looking on an otherwise fairly smoothed over rounded out machine but well the only design cue it really had to take was being double overhead cam and being gigantic yeah. That's kind of the selling point. But it does that well. The CB900 does not do that well. The G11, the GS1100 being probably the best motor out of all of these doesn't doesn't pull the whole trick off very well. As you said, it's it's the best of a category, which is I don't know, is this the beginning of power cruisers? This is definitely not the peak of Power Cruisers. Power Cruisers took a whole nother step up like six years after this, five years after this, when you got your Magnas and your your VMAX and a lot more liquid-cooled things with a lot more technology. But this is kind of the starting point, like the first bump up from the 750s. I think so. I think, yeah, this is really where power cruisers begin. This is a classic power cruiser. I like that. Okay. Uh, well, yeah, I've, I've no more thoughts unless you've got more. Uh, I think I'm ready to move on. Okay. 
This is going to be fun. All right. Now it's time for... And the worst bike in the world this week is... The 2008 ATK 700 Intimidator. Now, sometimes I really like the worst bike in the world this week. And this is one of those. I love this bike, but it's horrible, but it's bonkers, but it's ugly, but it's endearing. It's not really innovative, but it does push boundaries. More than anything, it's just ridiculous that it exists. Wait, hang on a minute. Yeah. Yeah, it's slowly <laughs> dawning on you what we're looking at. <laughs> okay, so this is a 700cc two-stroke dirt bike. Yes, it is. <laughs> is this a single cylinder? Yep. So, okay. So Why? the Why? I know, I know. It's... Okay. So, we've spent some weeks explaining that it's it's really hard to use more than 40 horsepower in a dirt bike. The level of skill that you need to really push 30 horsepower to... to, You know, and here's this ridiculous two-stroke... That's 700 cc's that. All right. So here's the thing. It's not really a great. Well, no, it's a disaster of a bike because. Well, okay. Guess how much horsepower it makes. Oh, I've already got the number in front of me. Yeah. Yeah. 78 horsepower. Well, yeah. And some estimates put it at 82. Uh, yeah. It's <laughs> 78 horsepower, right? The, the, 450 like fuel injected 450s make like 55 horsepower and everyone's like whoa you bought a 450 like did you let the government know right is that thing registered exactly so (laughs) this is making yeah 78 horsepower and it's a two-stroke so not only is it just a a preposterous amount of horsepower on the dirt it's also hard to control. Oh, really? Because <laughs> it's this. The, there's a great picture somewhere of a Honda CR500R piston sitting inside the jug of this, and <laughs> it's like almost like an inch of space all the way around it. So yeah, it's a 680 something cc single. Now. Here's where it becomes obvious why it's not a great bike. It's really, it's, it's, this is badge engineering. This bike existed before 2008 and it was the Mako 700. Now, Mako's a foreign dirt bike company that made a lot of awesome two strokes back in the day. They were pretty strong through the 80s and uh, just, things went wrong and they went out of business. And before they went out of business, they made this 700. 
And some people were excited about it, but they were people that were just kind of destined to... Well, really, Yamaha killed this idea by making a really awesome 400 four-stroke that could compete with all kinds of two-strokes and just hand everyone their ass. So two-strokes went the way of the Dodo. And and by this time already, um, 250 classes were way more popular and... It it just this was going completely the wrong direction that you know, um. So it's barely really more than like a late nineties two fifty two stroke with just this massive seven hundred just put into it. So it doesn't deliver power in any different way. The geometry's not changed. It's not really any lighter. It doesn't do anything to compensate for the fact that it just pushes out all this power. It's just a novelty. And this company, ATK, is really interesting. And it's kind of interesting why it has this badge. So this company, ATK, was an American company. And it was almost like a an American dirt version of... Um, of Bimoda in a weird way. They they made these really, really cool superior to factory frames back in the 80s. And they would put like Honda XR motors in there. They were really big into Honda XR motors. And they would use a lot of Rotax engines. And kind of like Bimoda was doing sport bikes at the time, they were doing these super cool custom American dirt bikes. And through like 85, 86, like the late 80s, they were winning races and they were really cool. You could think of them as sort of how people look at beta these days. And then they just kind of, I don't know, they never really got their dealer network together that well and and part support and this and that. And then they were bought by a company and traded around and it just never all came together quite right. ATK was almost a really, really great American name in dirt bikes and it just kind of fizzled out. So by the late 90s, early 2000s, they're just selling stuff under this name and they're not really making much of their own anymore. They've still got a custom, a few custom frames lying around that they're putting other engines in, but it's mostly just badge engineering and sort of their last death throw was, Hey, we can get our hands on some of these Mako 700s and maybe there's enough people fighting this four stroke trend that, they'll buy one just out of spite. Yeah, even though it's stupid, even though no one can control it, even though it doesn't fit into any race class, it's unrideable. I, I, you know, that's kind of a great way to go though. It is. No, I love this bike and we have to get our hands on one, <laughs> but it's not really a great thing. There, there aren't really any videos of someone doing awesome things on them because it's not really rideable. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there are plenty of YouTube videos of people just bombing CR500s around. 
and that's a that's a bucking bronco of a thing. I mean, getting any kind of smooth power and RPMs out of a seven hundred and fifty cc two stroke. No, six hundred eighty. Oh, six hundred and eighty. Well, even at that displacement, that just seems unsustainable. Like I don't know what you could do with this. Yeah, I mean, maybe there's some way to make like a desert racer out of it, perhaps. But again, in what class? In an open class, I guess. They it maybe can you actually cool a a thumper that big, like with air fins? Like, how do you? Well, this has a radiator, I believe, somewhere. Yeah, yeah, it's got you know twin radiators, like you would. Okay. It's it is liquid cooled, but mm, yeah, I mean, but yeah, the so so it's a disaster for for many reasons. So, so the engine is too much. It's just straight up too much, and it, it really only wants to do this one RPM all the time by reports of the few people that have ridden it. So it doesn't it doesn't have a power band. You just have to get it to this one rev range where it kind of works and it's garbage everywhere else. Wait, why is this a left-hand kick? I don't because everything about the motor is weird. I don't it just is, okay? And then That's well no, right I didn't know it's not well. it's not actually left-hand kick. I believe this has electric start. Because it's a 680-something cc single. The, I, I mean, would hope so. Like, how the fuck are you going to get the kickstart this thing again if you kill it on a trail or in the middle of a race or something, right? I, this is just too big of a kick to ask. You know, as we discovered, when you're riding around... Well, I guess you didn't because you didn't crash. But I discovered that even if you've got a really reliable, fairly modern bike... After you've been riding around for 25 minutes going hard and you crash, it I mean, it oh, takes no. a minute to, to oh. kind of get your strength back up and give the bike mm. a proper kick. And of course, in the meantime, you give it three or four kicks that just aren't very good. You just kind of keep tiring yourself out until eventually you're like, all right, I'm just going to get off the bike and stand next to it for five minutes. So I've just been burned really hard. Okay. I tried to pull up the uh the ATK USA website and I had to go use the the Wayback machine. And I got it, but it's Flash. Oh. Uh. Flash, rest in peace. Okay, so Okay, so so the whole thing with ATK was they had super cool frames. That was the whole thing. But mm. this is an ATK without an ATK frame. It's a Mako frame. And it's really just a Mako frame that's like from the Mako 500. They just squeezed this stupid motor into it. So it's not only is it not a good frame, it's not even an ATK frame. And it's a Mako frame. And it's not even a particularly good Mako frame. And, and kind of around this time, Mako did do a few things to this bike to sort of 
like the like they made a a, a a motocross version of it and they made an enduro version and they made like a desert racer version they you know they put lights on them and they they changed different parts of the bike to make it a little bit more functional one way or the other but this atk version just sucks there's no way to make it it's not street legal like some of the makos were it's not particularly anything it's it comes with no features except electric start. And the only reason it comes with electric start is it would just be impossible if it didn't. Right. But yeah, the, the swing arms ancient, everything about it's ancient, uh, even by 2008 standards, uh, there were, you know, I mean, does it real? this frame doesn't even look like it's got as much tech in it as your Oh three YZ two fifty. I mean, mm-hmm. this is a really basic frame. Uh, I'm sure it's strong enough and everything, but it's it's kind of from a couple companies that were really running out of gas as far as research and development. They were just combining different parts of bikes into new bikes. That's, yeah. But again, I, I love this bike. I love how ridiculous it is. And... Uh, the pipe on this bike is crazy. I, it I, looks like a sousaphone. I was thinking <laughs> it looks like it looks like a large intestine from one of those health class pictures. Yeah, of, of an abdomen, and I know like a lot of two-stroke exhausts look that way, but. Because of the insane dimensions of this exhaust, it really, really looks like a large intestine and colon. It really does. I can okay. So we've talked about expensive tip overs before. Because of the special dimensions and the tuning and the special welding of this. I can't, I didn't even look it up, but I mean, should we guess and then look up what an exhaust for one of these must cost? I mean, this has got to be like a $700 just straight pipe, right? I mean, with no bat, with nothing in it, this has got to be a $700 pipe. I think you're way undershooting. <laughs> I think at this point it's got to be like, well, for one thing, it's probably priceless at this point. Um, I would guess at least like fifteen hundred dollars, because what else is this going to go on? I mean, nothing. Um, uh, let's see here. Here's you can't buy this anymore, but this says no. Hold on. Mako six seven. Okay, so here's a Mako version of this bike that I found for sale, and it is fourteen thousand euros. Oh, for the bike? For the Mako, yeah. I mean, the Mako's a little bit better. The Mako has a little bit more engineering in it, but not a lot. Uh, but at least mm, I can't find an exhaust though. 
I'm actually going to revise up. I doubt you could. F- I bet you can't find it for like sub two thousand dollars. Well, I bet you just can't find them. You just have to get someone to make one for you, and that's why it's crazy expensive. Uh, oh, 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 no. 1957. It's not 57. Come on. Well, anyway, people don't want to hear us just Googling things. And um, yeah, O'Reilly, you don't have this exhaust. Trust me. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, this bike is so much fun. Um, I guess the reason it was originally created was... Well, I don't know. Can you guess why it was originally created? Because the the origin of it is not as insane as it ended up being. I have no idea. Sidecar racing. Ah, okay, yeah. That's the one application, just adding all that extra weight and the other wheel. It just kind of... And that makes more sense with the way it was kind of tuned and just did that single RPM and you're just relying on your sidecar driver to balance everything out as you just bomb corners basically yeah apparently this was pretty awesome for sidecar racing but outside of that really no application whatsoever does anybody do off-road sidecar racing besides like eastern europe not that i know of i there must be some ama dirt sidecar racing but uh yeah do we need to buy a dirt sidecar uh no we don't we're gonna need collectively to need to lose like a hundred pounds for that to become even remotely know, maybe viable. maybe we could come up with the sort of ducati racing philosophy of dirt sidecar go listen nope we're not about top speed we're about ha- that extra weight transfer in the corners that's <laughs> It's like, let's specifically not lose weight or just or just the rider can lose weight but the sidecar passenger is as heavy as possible We're gonna wear weight vests our whole thing is we can keep the balance better we want to have as high as the top speed anyway um yeah so that's the Mako 700 Intimidator. I do like the name too, the or the ATK 700 Intimidator. Uh, a poorly conceived project, badge engineering, kind of outdated technology, pushing boundaries, but ultimately foolish. But uh, you know, I mean, also, oh, okay. Sorry, last thing. Uh, for something that's so wacky, the bodywork is really disappointing. That's true. You would think uh, now again the the Mako version has much cooler bodywork, awesome paint schemes, and everything, or or whatever, or decals or whatever. The ATK they're all just plain black. They have this tiny little sticker on them, and it's really just very plain odd looking bodywork it's it you know like love or hate the busa it's got this really crazy in your face i'm a busa thing about it whereas if you didn't know what you were looking at with this thing besides the gigantic size of the jug you'd be like 
What's this like 97 dirt bike all about? Right. Okay. All right, let's uh let's put a little break in here and then come back with our movies. All right. Let's do the thing. Okay, so we're going to talk some more motorcycle movie scenes cuz this has just been on our minds lately. So last time what were the, we talked about Terminator 2, we talked about what else? Uh, the torque box That's right. fight. Yeah. And what was the other one? Why am I? Anyway, those were three, we thought outstanding motorcycle movie scenes. And some of them are super iconic. Uh, oh, the matrix scene as well. Yeah. Uh, and there are scenes that a lot of people agree are very, very great motorcycle scenes. They make a lot of, you know, top 10 best motorcycle movie scenes. Um, this next one we're going to talk about makes some lists. It's not that it's necessarily a great scene, although we both do enjoy it. It's just kind of, it was very bonkers at the time. It's a little less bonkers now, but the premise is ridiculous. And I think we can both agree that in all of the James Bond movies that utilize a motorcycle chase scene, this is probably the strongest. Yes. Uh, and, you know, it also kind of gets a little bit of a pass because one, it is a James Bond movie. And two, this was pure product placement. Right. So we're talking about Tomorrow Never Dies, arguably the worst Pierce Brosnan <laughs> James Bond movie. I don't know. Die Another Day was pretty bad. Die Another Day at least had more memorable villains. You know, we had Diamond Face and Madonna and all of that. I like the 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 villain premise of Tomorrow Never Dies is just stupid. I Although I think it is one that people will relate to a lot more today than they did back at the time. Well, that's true, but <laughs> Yeah, but but he but wants yeah. to start a global war just to sell newspapers. <laughs> like, I yes, news outlets are definitely playing up like regional skirmishes. They're not trying to start world wars. <laughs> anyway, so okay, so this movie takes place in uh, all over the now. Do, I think they're in Vietnam. I thought they were in Hong Kong. But I could be wrong about that. I always thought this was in Hong Kong. Anyway, it's some major uh, city in Southeast Asia. Or South Asia, whatever you want to call it. Anyway, it's Pacific, <laughs> I guess. And so James, and, so Bond and the Bond girl in this movie are handcuffed together. And at this point, they don't like each other which is a common James Bond theme. He always, whatever girl he ends up with at the end, he always hates her when they meet at first. This is just a Bond thing. So the moment where they 
the thing that they bond over is that they get handcuffed together and they have to um they, they have, have to escape from the right. from the evil from the headquarters. Now the way that they're handcuffed together if they went in a car she would have to drive. So as they're running towards these vehicles Bond is like no 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 motorcycle it's faster which in that environment, it does make possibly, sense. but he doesn't want her to drive. That that's clear. <laughs> so they get on this motorcycle, and then they have this moment fumbling around. Well, who's going to do what? What? And he's like, "No, no, no! You've got to get on the back or whatever." And they're they're fumbling around, and and uh, they take off, and she's kind of like half on the bike like kind of chained to him, whatever. And she just sort of starts flip moving around the bike until they get in a position where she's on the back and holding the, the clutch and, and the left grip. And he uh, is sitting on the front. So he's got both the brakes and the gear shift and the other handlebar. And so they have to cooperate to maneuver this, Oh, we should point out this is the BMW R1200C. One of the most so BMW is a ridiculous motorcycle company, and this is one of the most ridiculous BMWs ever made. I, is this maybe where BMW's heavier quotes styling went too far? Because this is a look that they tried and aban- and even BMW abandoned very quickly. Yeah, well, we've talked about the the R twelve hundred C. No, we talked about the the no, smaller the eight hundred CC version, the Montauk. We've talked about both. Oh, okay, a fair amount. <laughs> well, this is this is the ugliest cruiser of all time. There is no question. Uh, I would not disagree. Right. So heavy product placement, because this is right after GoldenEye and BMW got a deal with the Bond franchise, you know, with the Z3 and all that other stuff being put in the movie. So they thought, oh, let's let's show a bike. What's our new bike? Well, it's insane, but it's a Bond movie, whatever. Right. So. So they're they're moving around this, and, and as dumb as the premise is for this chase, it kind of works because whenever they get to a point where they they need to, they, they kind of have like a they're they're so they're arguing the whole time, but they're working into the conversation that they have to lean together, or you know they're like this, they're talking to each other about where they're going to turn, and, and whenever they're about to change gear, James Bond just yells out clutch you know <laughs> they they thought a little bit about it like of course it's stupid it's it's as preposterous as the the tank scene in goldeneye like it makes no sense really when you think about it but they put enough thought into it that on the surface everything passes yeah well also they it's it's cut together really well when they mix the stunt scenes with the actors faces the way they the way it's all cut together it flows pretty seamlessly it also makes sense that in this claustrophobic environment that they would use a bike rather than a car and there's plenty of places where that 
that works to their advantage. But also it, it adds the vulnerability aspect of they're running away and they're being chased by cars and a helicopter. And there's that asymmetry and that vulnerability going on. So thematically, like it all kind of works. It's preposterous. It's kind of stupid. But it's stupid in a very fun and entertaining way. Yeah, I also like that James Bond is very good at handling a motorcycle, but it's not like Skyfall, where if James Bond wanted to, he could just be like an all-star freestyle motocross rider. <laughs> right? You know what I mean? Like, like, why in Skyfall is James Bond so incredibly good at riding this weird enduro bike, right? The, there's no good reason. I mean, he's fucking Lynn Jarvis at 80 miles an hour in Skyfall. Like, when did James Bond have this much time to train with just with enduro bikes to become apparently the world's greatest rider? I... It kind of bumps me that he that, that the stunts they pull off in Skyfall, like it's too good, you know, whereas in this one, it's kind of enough that they're just working together to to get through all the obstacles in their way. Yeah. And well, also the bike serves a plot like a plot point. This is where our two heroes bond together doing this thing together, which is normally a solo activity operating a motorcycle. Right. So it's, it's just, it's, it's not super clever, but it's just clever enough to make it, Mm. you you know, it's not, it's not too on the nose. It, It works. It's, it's meaningful and it's, and it's fun. And we have to talk about the helicopter. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, if you think about it, the helicopter is what really makes the whole thing because they they manage to start working together enough, uh, pulling this bike around. And of course, all the very J- the classic James Bond motorcycle scene things happen. There's there's trucks that get in their way and little tight gaps that they just barely make. And well, instead of the bad guys running into a giant truck of chickens, it's a it's a fireworks truck. Right. Mm-hmm. And it goes off. So instead of the, the feathers and the glass or the fruit explosion, we get fireworks because that's how James Bond does things. Right. So that's all very satisfying. And th- they go they kind of go over a whole bunch of uh, things or whatever and end up in like the second or third story of a building. And you're like, OK, there's no way that anyone could have chased them through all of this. Right. But then a helicopter comes, which takes the chase to a whole different level. It's like, oh, you can't just disappear through alleys now. They're in the air looking for you, right? So they have to actually take on this helicopter because this helicopter corners them like at a dead end alley. And it pitches itself like almost like like pointed straight down at the ground and is just moving slowly through this alleyway with the blood. Like, there's no way a helicopter can do this, but they managed to do a great big like uh, slide on the bike underneath the helicopter blades. And then they, they throw something in its rotors and it crashes and hooray. Right. But on many levels, the scene works. It's not just, it's not just a bunch of stunts that you know your heroes are going to get through anyway. Right? Right. It, it's very good. I, um, 
Well, I, I don't know if it's very good, but it's it's better than average. And and it works on a plot level. There's a there, there's a reason it's a motorcycle, not a car or some other vehicle, which makes it especially good. Because in almost every Tom Cruise motorcycle chase scene, it's just because Tom Cruise wanted to ride a motorcycle in the movie. It could have happened on jet skis. It could have happened in a car. It could have happened in fighter planes. It's just that Tom really likes bikes. And at some point, we need to do a breakdown of just Tom Cruise motorcycle scenes and rank them. Because I... No one's done more for motorcycles in cinema than Tom Cruise, but only through pure volume. Not much of it is actually very high quality. <laughs> okay, so let's switch gears. Walk us through RoboCop 2014 swings. Do I have to? Yeah, so this okay. is this is how it's not done, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Right, so, you know, if we think about the original RoboCop, well, let's start with the bike itself, and then we'll we'll talk about why it's dumb. So, it's 2014, new RoboCop, everything has to be bigger, better, crazier, sleeker, cooler. Matt Black and goth. Yeah, in any way that the current director thinks that this might work out or might match modern tastes. And for some reason they thought rather than have him in a police car, which worked out very well in the original movie because he was ultimately a police officer. Instead they decide, Oh, we've got to get around quickly and they've put all this money into this big RoboCop. Like, they're going to have a vehicle just for him. Let's get him a bike. And then, for some reason, they style it completely to essentially have a bike that looks like RoboCop. So he's just riding a bike that looks like himself. There's no particular reason that this makes any sense. It's not like he can arrest somebody on a bike, even though he's going around all by himself. There's no interesting backstory as to how he got a bike. The bike doesn't facilitate anything, and he never gets involved in any sort of conflict that involves the bike. So it's just there to be a cool bike. But the bike isn't even cool. It's kind of hideous. And we don't even get any very good shots on it, because... Oh, no, we get a very good shot at its automatic uh, deploying swing arm, except it's really more of a hyd- it's got its own hydraulic jack built into the bottom of it. Yeah, because this advanced super soldier can't activate a, a side stand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or why couldn't have it just had a kickstand that will just flick itself out? That would have been such a simpler solution to the problem. How no. much space and weight is that taking up on this supposed RoboCop superbike? But no, apparently Omnicorp put like equal time and effort into designing their own bespoke motorcycle for RoboCop. He could have just ridden an R6. Or he could have just had a police car. Yeah. Well, yes. 
Yeah, the police car. Fits I mean, it was Detroit. Robocop. It's not like Detroit is short on roads. Well, the police car is so great for RoboCop too because you know, he's sort of a man inside a machine, right? And the police car just takes that even further, you know, because throughout RoboCop, he's remembering who he is sort of very slowly you know there's that scene where he goes and stands outside his old house and he's he's not totally with it but he's getting sort of slow memories coming back and everything and and so so, so murphy is kind of coming out of robocop slowly throughout the movie well that just goes further with the car right he's robocop and he's kind of inside the the police force he's inside the car and he kind of you know breaks out of that mold too it works, but also RoboCop is all about um, breaking expectations. Everyone else is kind of going with the flow, and he breaks the mold. He makes the change, you know. And it, it's, 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 those, those scenes work because this police car just pulls up, and the RoboCop music kicks in, and then RoboCop gets out of the police car. You know, they're expecting some scared. The, all the gang members are expecting a scared cop to get out, but no, RoboCop gets out and shoots you in the dick. Right? right. It's fucking <laughs> awesome. I fucking love RoboCop. It's the best. If you haven't watched RoboCop in a while, do it. RoboCop 1 and 2. They're fucking awesome. RoboCop 3 and RoboCop 2014 can fucking suck it. But 1 and 2 are the best. Uh but this is this is a big motorcycle movie fail. And for the exactly the same reason, I think as a motorcycle movie, the the Dark Knight is a big fail as well. Or is is the Bat Cycle in Batman Begins as well? No, it's only in the Dark Knight. Okay, I well I, let's break that down as well. Like I don't think. Well, first of all, it's arguable that that vehicle is a motorcycle. <laughs> I. But, mm. We have to talk about this because this is a movie that seems to make modern lists of noticeable motorcycle scenes or motorcycle movies or whatever. And it's just dumb. It's just it's just pointless Batman gadgetry, right? The the whole Christopher Nolan Batman thing was to kind of make it gritty and take it to a a not maybe realism, but some sort of plausibility. But, right. But the bat cycle is just some straight up like Adam West shark repellent bullshit. <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs> it, well, it really is because it comes out of the Bridger, which was the Tumblr. Or the Tumblr, yeah. Which is like the bridge building um, vehicle from Wayne Industries that they actually had one because it had this original like military purpose. And then it was discontinued. So he got to just take it and turn it into the Batmobile. It gave the black the Batmobile this plausible origin. Yeah. And there's a reason he had it. There's a reason nobody knew about it. He wasn't employing like engineers and mechanics to build this vehicle that they would then just see on TV and be like, oh shit, Wayne, Bruce Wayne ordered that. 
Like, there's this thing that makes sense. Um, but then he crashes it or it gets, like, shot up. And then just, like, two wheels pop off. And out from under it, this bat cycle emerges using two of the wheels. Yeah, what part of the bridge was that for fucking making? Well, yeah, why? And why does it have, like, rockets on it and, like, a, a tow cable capable of flipping semis? Like, where did this all come from? Why is that scene even necessary? I yeah, what what purpose does the scene, besides him, like, charging at the Joker and then, like, crashing at the last minute because he doesn't want to kill him, like... Like it, it, it's this weird buildup all to this one scene that could have been served in a completely different way for a weird bit of gadgetry that didn't make any sense. It didn't look good either. Yeah, the awkward, the the design of it's super awkward. It's mostly the tires. When I look at that thing, I'm like, "There's no way this thing steers." It, it's basically like the worst dark siding you've ever seen, front and back. Yeah, and. And it's center hub steering, which makes me angry. <laughs> and and it's so many things about it. It's it's got this weird spindly frame too, and I'm like, oh, this thing, this doesn't hold up. I, it doesn't. Mm, It doesn't look like a cool motorcycle I would want to ride. It doesn't particularly look like a Batman style of vehicle. It doesn't like if you think about the old Bat cycle from the the Adam West TV series, which I think was a George Barris vehicle. It was just sort of a thing for them to be on kind of cruising around like, you know, they, they would just take shots of them, you know, riding around Southern California on this bat cycle, which was, I, I can't remember, some sort of Honda dressed up with a bunch of just custom fabricated, very swoopy 60s Batman looking bodywork and a really cool sidecar for Robin. And uh, it was really mostly, I think, for this for Robin to have a sidecar. That was like the point. And and I mean, even in a way that kind of serves a purpose because uh, you're getting Robin involved, right? Uh, but uh, the the bat cycle serves nothing. It's it's like you said. I, we were watching the Robocop scene. And I was like, why? Why does he have this? And you're like, because he's a superhero. He's got to have his superhero vehicle. But this is doubly dumb because he's already got his superhero vehicle. Uh, so it's just it's just pointless. It's empty calories. Yeah. So so we talked about why why the the bat cycle from Dark Knight sucks. We talk um oh, and it's reprised in um it, I just remember it is reprised in um uh uh Dark Knight Rises as well. There is a, a short scene with that. Which actually, no, that's doubly dumb. We gotta talk about that. Uh, because they're riding and then like a a cop recognizes it. And he tells like his rookie partner, he's like, Oh, you're gonna see a show tonight, right? Like, so apparently in between the two movies, where we're led to believe that 
Batman is basically just quits. The bat cycle has been built into some sort of myth with the police force. Cause they're instantly like, Oh, I know what that is. That thing, this thing that Batman used once that like no police saw. They're trying to like build myth around it. This uh, it's so dumb. It doesn't make any sense. None of it connects. I hate it. I hate it. So anyway, there's that. We talk about RoboCop sucks for the same reason. Let's talk about a RoboCop motorcycle scene then that does work. There's a scene in Mo- in RoboCop two where he captures the bad guy. This is this is one of the reasons RoboCop two is so wonderful. He actually defeats the bad guy like a third of the way into the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and then things go horribly wrong after that. It's 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 really great. So the the bag so um Kane, the, the villain from this movie who's so wonderful, uh has like an armored car and it's filled with this this drug, nuke, and a bunch of money. And Robocop is is trying to stop him and a series of of bad guys goes by on bikes and RoboCop knocks one of them off on who's like got some sort of like Harley Cruiser type bike. And so he gets on it and he he does a couple maneuvers whatever and it works because like he kind of passes over getting on the super cool like cuz this movie's from like 1990 or 92 something like that. I want to say it's 90 90 91 and a couple like super sports goes by and he doesn't know he, he stops but they the roll with they roll right cruiser. over his dick first yeah <laughs> um and he stops the cruiser and he gets on like this harley this very basic thing and it's very out of character for robocop for reasons we've explained but he uses it like he, so he's already like a machine and then he uses this machine. He's, but he's like, he's revving it like at Kane. Yeah. He's actually using the motorcycle to emote. Right. And, and he kind of does like some weird things. Like he rides it standing up and some other things that, but, but again, motorcycle uh, Robocop like subverts expectations. So Instead of doing a bunch of crazy scenes that are all copied in a bunch of other movies, Robocop just takes the bike and rides it head on into the vehicle he's trying to stop and jumps through the window, the front glass (laughs) of the armored car, which is kind of insane because it's an armored car. How can you jump through the glass? But he's Robocop, so he does. It's fantastic. Like, it's the last thing you expect to happen. It's so wonderful. You, you think like, oh, RoboCop's got a hold of a motorcycle. He's going to do these sweet jumps and all this stuff. Nope. He just jumps through the front glass. <laughs> it's great. That's how it's fucking done. That it's, it's used to great effect. It's, it's so awkward to see um, RoboCop on the bike. So they don't even try to make him look comfortable on it. It just, it just works. Right. He's 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 not like trying to become one with the bike or something. He is he is commandeering it, right? Yeah, yeah. 
That's how it's fucking done. I highly recommend you watch RoboCop 2014, just a a clip of motorcycle scenes from that. You're going to feel disgusted, but then watch the scene from RoboCop 2, and you'll understand everything we're talking about. Okay. Um, I don't any any closing thoughts there, Swigs? I, I just want to stop talking about RoboCop 2014. I know, it's such fucking garbage. I I kind of just want to do a movie commentary on RoboCop 2 now. <laughs> I just want to watch RoboCop 2. Okay. Um, so GP, we need to catch up on MotoGP. We do. Actually, we should take a short break. Okay. Then. Let's do a short break. I need to get some more tea, and then we'll do that. And we're back, and we're going to catch up on MotoGP. So, Swigs, you, we watched Moto2 and GP on Sunday, but you got caught up with Moto3, which I, well, I watched Moto3 on Sunday. You were out busy riding dad's goosey california what um i don't know what what did you think about the moto three race uh i thought it was fucking crazy it was <laughs> i really enjoyed it uh i think well we we have not talked about moto three until this moment i'm going to guess that for you this race was one of the biggest highlights of what you think the the problems with the class are. Yes. See, I, on this particular race, I, I, I think that is true, but also Darren Bender is so fucking awesome that he was able to, well, he didn't win the race overcame the problems of the class, or at least enough to show how immensely talented he is. I think that's true. And I think the point that you regularly make uh, is valid in that the cream does rise to the top. And that even though each race may be insane and chaotic and have things happen way outside your control, over the course of a season, the most talented riders do make their way to the front over in the points across a se- across the season. But for me, it the biggest issue I have is just having this massive pack of riders where nobody can ever get away because the drafting on the straights is so important. And the fact that everyone bunches up because the fighting at the front slows everybody down. So you end up with this weird sort of peloton throughout the whole race. And then as people get desperate on the last few laps, it's just total fucking carnage. Well, it certainly was in this race. <laughs> what? Hold on. So, so okay, let, let, let's give a little bit of a breakdown here. So this race was crazy for a number of reasons. One, it's the only double round on the calendar this year. So we were at Qatar again. So this race was unique to the season because it's the only one where everyone gets to use the same data like twice right we had again windy conditions like we had a week ago on the races 
everyone was kind of set up again. And in each of the classes, we had very similar races to what we had the week before, which seems kind of boring, but that really didn't happen last year with any of the double rounds. Every race last year, we were expecting, oh, okay. Well, or at least every second race at all the double rounds last year, we're like, oh, well, okay. This one will look then like last week's race. And they never did. We, yeah. This was unexpected because, well, it finally did. So I guess all the teams have kind of gotten a handle on how to, I guess they, they had to learn how to use the data week to week. They weren't good at it last year or so. I don't know what the weird dynamic was with that, but everyone ran a very similar race as to what they it had all looked like the week before. Well, I think that's because last year, like it was just pure chaos. Everyone was ready to go into a season. Then COVID happened. Then there was going to be no racing. Then there was racing again. And then everyone had to scramble. Everyone had the reduced pit size crew. Yeah, nobody maybe it was no reduced pit crew. Maybe that was it. Nobody, nobody was in a position. Nobody was in their regular zone. Everybody was off balance, like the whole season. So, yeah, that's going to be more crazy. But now we got to see something kind of more like, uh, like a Moto America season with the or. Or a uh, world superbike kind of event with the back-to-back races. Here's a fun idea. What if every year, like, what if over the next 18 years, every regular long-standing track just randomly gets a double race? Like, next year, we'll do double rounds in Argentina. The year after that, we'll do double rounds in Coda. And the year after that, we'll do double rounds at Harath. But every year, there's only one double round race. It sounds interesting, and I think it'd be fun. But I don't think they'd make as much money. And they'd probably poo-poo it. Why wouldn't they make as much money? Because you'd have to get a big enough audience to go two weeks in a row. So you'd have a whole week in between... And if people are traveling to go visit the race, they've got to get the time off for two weekends back to back, or they've got to make the trip back to back or stick around for a week. I don't think you could fill the place up twice. Well, I know we would go for double rounds at Coda the whole time. <laughs> That's true. We'd find a way. I, I think I think lots of people I think lots of local people would be stoked mm-hmm. to do it twice. And I think after the excitement of it happening one week and people going, or, you know, going, oh, my gosh, the race was so great, they could convince their friends to come the next week. And the, and if it's something that's not always going to happen, then, you know, it's not something to miss. Eh, just a weird thought. Yeah. Just random double rounds. I mean, it's something that's on the table now. Mm-hmm. But anyway, or what so, if, how about this? What if we get something like a Silverstone situation a couple of years ago where they have to cancel a race? We just do double rounds for the next one. Maybe, yeah. I like that. Okay. Anyway. anyway so, yeah. So, the issue I have is, like, this is the same reason I don't really watch, like, boxing or MMA or, like, drag racing. <laughs> Is like I don't like 
to watch sports that just leaves like a wake of both financially and physically destroyed people. (laughs) (laughs) Like, and you know, some of the crashes are spectacular and in a way it's engaging and exciting, but it's not what we're here for. Like it's a side effect of the danger and, and the speed itself. It's not the main event and it shouldn't, it shouldn't be this regular occurrence that we're going to have guys in traffic constantly wrecking and wiping out, wiping each other out. And the, the, the displacement, the speeds and the tracks all just combine to, well, and the homologation all just kind of combine to make it happen every race weekend. And this really kind of demonstrated it. And, you know, you know, as part of that, you know, Pedro Acosta coming first from pit lane, amazing achievement, super awesome, very exciting. And it looks like he's going to go far, but also it's only even possible because of the weird way these races play out. Right. Well, I think, I think it's not so the, okay. I think we can, they continue to keep Moto3 just the way it is because it's so radically different than any other kind of motor racing because the dynamics are so odd. The fact that it is odd and that it is unfair in a lot of ways is the attraction to it. You plenty of people get a shot. It plenty of people get a shot in Moto3. And the idea is if you're going to make it to Moto2 or GP, you need to be so unbelievably good that you were able to be a standout success in Moto3. It what it takes to ride at the GP level. I think I think MotoGP loves that it's such a brutal class because uh, you know the the because the, the GP racers are just sort of like forged in fire out of Moto Three, and it's it's bizarre because it's. What's hard because it's so bizarre. They're really, I mean, yes, there's the drafting's really important in NASCAR, but at least it's constant. It's not right, and um, and yeah, the the crashes are brutal and everything, but they're they're under a little bit more of the rider's control than it is in say drag racing, where just a little bit of air gets under something and everything goes horribly wrong. It's the, the attraction is that everything is so bizarre, not, not any specific rule in general, but they don't want to change anything because any change will just push it back more towards normal in any direction. A, A change in engine size would do that a change in equipment and the bikes, a change in the way the start starting grid is done, the way the qualifying is done, the way any of it's done 
would push it more towards normal. And the whole point of it is that it's just weird and crazy and insane. I see that's the best I can describe it. Yeah. Let's talk about the race itself. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we had a rookie start from pit lane and win the race, which even with the weird dynamics of Moto three is a huge feat. There's no getting around that. That's true. And it's not like he didn't run a really great race the week before. Uh, where, where did he place the week before? It was, it was high up. Well, he kind of faded back towards the end, but he was in the top three at several points during the round, during round one. Uh, he was second. He was second in round one. Mm-hmm. Well, there you go. Yeah. Uh, he, yeah, he's going somewhere. And let's see, Darren Binder got third on the first week and he got what? Second this week. Yep. Yeah. Uh, but he was so like, okay, even though um, Pedro finished a place ahead of him in both weeks, Bender was the more consistent rider both weeks. Like just change a couple tiny variables, you know, a couple, a couple butterfly flaps and Winder, uh, Bender could have won both races. But welcome to every Moto3 race. <laughs> no, but like Bender... I mean, on nine out of 10 laps in both races mm. was in first place, but three quarters of the way through each lap and then yes. got swallowed on the straights. I, there were laps where he was making up like 10, he would get swallowed, go back to 10th and then get back to first again. It's very common for a rider to get swallowed up and then spend two or three laps, four laps getting back to the front, not three quarters of a lap, lap after lap after lap. He just had a superior pace and a superior uh, skill. He He's just really good at carving through that field. I mean, a lot of them are, but he's the best at it. He's mm-hmm. He's aggressive in just the right way he's fixed his crashing problems because he was always fast he was always aggressive he was always fun to watch but he would get into like fourth place third place and then he would just crash out in years past right and towards the end of last year when he finally got that win and this year he's fixed his crashing problems he's he's moto two bound he's 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 finally putting it together Mm-hmm. So yeah, and I've been. How long have I been a Darren Bender fan? I for years, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's been my favorite for a long time. Uh, yeah. So he's um he's getting more positive too. I mean, of course, it's easier to get positive when your when your results get better. But he's uh, I like that just under the surface. You know, he's a bit of a Jack Miller type. He's he's a little bit of a hothead. He's a little he's a little high strung. I like that. I don't know why, but I like that. He's he's a character. I'm all about it. And the double middle finger move. Like I need a t-shirt of that moment. Anyway, um so yeah, uh, in a sea of new names, new faces and not a lot of big reputations, um pff, uh We've we've got a new standout kid, and I, I think this season is is Bender's to lose personally. 
but we're going to see what happens, right? Because Qatar is not a great, uh, a great barometer of what's going to happen for the rest of the year, but you never know. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, Moto2. Well, before that, oh. we got we to gotta talk about John McPhee a little bit. Do we? I feel like the commentators do nothing but talk about John McPhee pointlessly. For a well, no, okay. So there's there's two angles here. The first is the crash, and okay, I think this is a piece of okay. We do need to talk about John McPhee kicking what's his face. Yeah. Well, we also need to just just. I think every rider needs to understand that you will never not look like a total dork trying to kick somebody in race leathers. Like, there's, yeah, could there be anyone more armored up? Well, not only that, but like, it's so awkward. Like the way that the leathers fit, like you can't really kick somebody in them. Like it's all way too constrained. You can't really lift your leg that high. You're just, you're always going to look like a dork doing it. Yeah. It was an unclassy move. But I feel like it was made even more unclassy by the commentators. So first of all, the 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 British commentators that we get on the American feed are, uh, for Moto3 and Moto2 at this point, completely unbearable. I can't fucking stand them. I, I, I need to figure, I need to just turn the commentary off. They're fine when they do GP. But when it comes to Moto3, all they can talk about is where John McPhee is. I, it, it, I mean, so uh, there's a there's a Valentino couple. Rossi could leave GP and then go back to Moto Three, be leading his first race, and they would have to take a good thirty seconds to talk. Well, you know, McPhee just put in a hot lap back in twelfth place. There's a chance he could get to this front pack, but <laughs> you know. <laughs> Yeah, uh, so we'll get to that in a sec. But first, did anybody actually check if John McPhee got concussed when he got fucking tail whipped by Alcoba's bike? I feel like that might have played a factor into the way he responded. He did get rattled pretty hard. I mean, that bike came in front of him like fucking um, Zarco or no Morbidelli's bike almost took Rossi out. It was <laughs> it was it, that 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 rear tire came really fucking close to his face. I don't think it actually hit him. Well, no, it hit the, his bike, but did it actually hit John? Yeah, the subframe hit him in the head. Oh, okay. Like From the camera angle, I saw that. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was. I felt like that might have played a factor. I don't know why nobody was asking that question at the time. Yeah. But also, you know what? It kind of sucks for McPhee that he got, they crashed out twice. But it's not like he's, is this his sixth year in Moto3 now? If not his 26th. At this point, you know, and this this also goes for like the Lowe's brothers as well on how much time they've had in Moto Two and Moto Three. You know, I should care more about the British riders, but you know, it's even yeah, if who's even, getting more unfair uh, commentary time at this point, John McPhee or Jake Dixon? 
Yeah. Uh, no, it's John McPhee. Yeah. <laughs> Dixon's Look, at least newish. Yeah. I at this point, like, I, I, it's like um, you know, at a certain point, it's like being you know, the most senior non-manager at a McDonald's franchise. Like, okay, yeah, you're kind of the top dog here, but it's still McDonald's. Like, okay, you're a very seasoned, you're a very skilled Moto3 rider, but you're still in Moto3. You should have been promoted Is John McPhee all that skilled? I... He is, but, you know, at the same time... There's plenty of kids coming after him who are working this as a part-time gig who have got their scholarships and their 1,300 scores on their SATs and they're off to greener pastures soon. You know, it's like he's, or, you know, you know, I get free popcorn at the movie theater. It's like, yeah, you're also 35. Right. Like, <laughs> you know, it's, it, even if McPhee does put in a race every now and then, it's impossible to get excited at this stage. And it's not that he's not one of the, you know, by being in Moto3, he's already one of the best motorcycle race. He's one of the best street racers in the world. But he should have been promoted by now if, if somebody would have picked him if they thought he had the talent. At this point, we're kind of due for some passport rides for Great Britain. And it's still not happening. The commentators really need to lay off the John McPhee praise until he actually does something more than get a couple podiums in a season. Yeah. Well, and then when he kicked, um, what's his face? Alcoba. Uh, Alcoba. They were they were instantly like, oh, that's uh, that's unfortunate. I mean, don't worry, John's John McPhee will be very very sorry about yeah. And it was like, yeah, yeah, he will be sorry about that. <laughs> like they're just apologizing for him already. What if he's not fucking sorry? <laughs> right? I, weirdly, like again, like they're fucking him over. One, they're making him look like a total favorite, and which is not a good look. Right? It just makes you look like a bitch. And second, what if John McPhee is like, you know what? I, I want to rebrand myself as more aggressive. Like what if this is all part <laughs> of the plan? But you know, like when Jack yeah. Miller called that called that uh guy on Facebook a cocksmoker. What if he was like, you know what, this is intentional? Like everyone plays it safe. I'm a wild card. There's no such thing as bad publicity, right? I'm gonna kick Alcoba. What if he's not sorry? <laughs> Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, so Moto Two, again, a similar race to last week, but there's still a lot to read into that. Again, uh, a, a thing I said as uh, before the the lights went out on Moto Two on round one, I said, "Watch out for Remy Gardner. He's got a. He's finally got a good bike. This guy's going to put in results." And he did. Again, second place was a much bigger story to me than the winner. Like, yeah, we Lowe's won this race just like he won last week, but he just has the setup and he gels with this course. I mean, he's got so much fucking experience on this course. He better be good at it, right? Mm. And it's it's a lot of it's a lot of new talent in Moto Two, but it's a lot of big talent in Moto Two. 
Moto Two is fucking stacked. I I didn't think after last year that Moto Two could get any more stacked with big talent, and it is. I mean, is is everyone in Moto Two right now going to make their way into GP in five years? I don't know how if there's enough people who are going to age out or or get kicked to make room for them, unless. I don't know, unless like the KTMs and the Aprilias really Dovey's catch up. Dovey's not running right now. Like, what, uh, what Rins has only been there four years, and Rins is one of the like guys that has more experience on the grid right now. The the Aspargros are ancient as far as GP is concerned. That's true. But a lot of guys now have only been there a year or two. We've seen a complete generation change. I mean, we also Rossi's, have Stefan Brodel riding a factory Honda right now. Well, that's just because of weird. That's not supposed to happen in that. Yeah. That's, that's some weird alternate universe stuff. That that wasn't supposed to happen. But I mean, there's been a big generation change, right? Yeah. So. I, yeah, Rins is one of the older guys. Think about that. Um, I mean, there's Petrucci. There's, at this point, Jack Miller's kind of been around for a while. And Vinales. They're, they're, they're kind of... Like, all the aliens are gone except Rossi. And Rossi finished last. So... It's a completely different grid than it was five years ago. Yeah, I, like, uh, except for Aspargros. I mean, Zarco's pretty old, but he got in pretty late as well. Well, yeah, it's not just their age; it's how long they've been there. Yeah, there aren't a lot of veterans left. Right. So, I mean. I don't know. Some of them are going to last. Some of them aren't. But in any case, it's. I mean, Gardner, if he if he does really well this season, he's definitely up for a passport ride. Well, I think a, a, a an earned ride though. Mm-hmm. Well, and here's the exciting thing: the all the satellite bikes. Well, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but all the satellite bikes in GP are so good now. It's not like it was where you had to get a factory ride in order to win, and the only reason you would ever want a satellite team is so you could try to override the bike and lead a few laps and convince people to then bump a factory rider for you when they got injured. And then you could maybe, maybe sit in on the factory team for a couple races. And if you got that shot, maybe you could convince them to give you the factory ride the next year on a different team. That mm-hmm. that's what there were. There were four bikes that could conceivably win races in past years. Now anything on the fucking grid can win, which is awesome. But but let's go back to Moto Two. Uh, so Lowe's ran away with it, but not by as big a margin as he did as before. Remy Gardner again put in a solid, solid second place, showing. He's just he's he's going to be consistently good, and after that, it was a little bit of a jumble, but still not wildly different than week one. I, no one did anything fucking stupid. 
I think we just got a lot of new talent in Moto Two still figuring some things out. Does that sound right? Yeah, I mean, I think possibly yeah. The two kind of brightest futures I see are for Remy Gardner and uh, Betsecki, who still came fourth. Uh, it's quite a ways back, but this is this race did get quite a bit strung out. Yeah. Um, but that kind of happens in Moto Two sometimes. Um, I still don't know why Tom, why Luthi is still racing. Yeah, yeah. Fucking take Tom Luthi out back, shoot him, put him down like a lame horse, and give Bender his ride, please. It's like just do it mid season. It'll be fine. <laughs> Just do it. Do it before we get to before we get to Portugal. Just fucking do it. Bender will take the handicap on the season. It'll <laughs> be fine, right? Yeah. Uh, and then, in somewhat sad news, but you know, it's fine. It's early days. Uh, we had both Americans crash out. Um. Although Joe Roberts was still doing pretty well up until he crashed i think he was in like sixth or seventh when he crashed out yeah he was in the same spot that he qualified in right yeah and then um bobier was not doing great when he crashed out but again he's kind of just got there so we'll see how that goes um well at least roberts is consistently putting in uh first and second row starts uh he was third row this race but like Sixth he's not place would be second row. No, he was fifth first week. He was eighth this week. Oh, he's eighth. Oh, I thought yeah. he was sixth. Okay, well, but um, but he's not qualifying like twenty second anymore. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't. He's not. He he's not qualifying twenty second, getting tw- twelve seconds behind the pace, and then crashing. I'm not holding my breath for him in the way that like the British commentators hold their breath for John McPhee. Right. Yeah. But I would like to see him. I'd like to see consistent progress. Exactly. And not just for him, but to show that it's possible for the Americans, which he's already done. We just need to, it just be good to see the consistency come up and see, you know, get a, get a win, get a few extra podiums, get some more polls, and then just kind of keep paving the way. Well, it's it's the X Games effect. So we used to think that backflips were on skateboards or BMX or motocross or snowboards, whatever. It was all impossible. And then someone goes to the X Games and does it. And then the next year, 15 people can do it. Right. Right. Joe Roberts, I'm hoping, is our X Games backflip for American riders. We need, like, one win to show that it's possible. Just one. We don't need a winning season. We don't need back-to-back wins. But we need just one win, right? Yeah. If Joe Roberts wins one Moto2 race, he's accomplished he he's he's done everything yeah mm-hmm. 
that's yeah, and and Remy Gardner is going to be awesome this year, and that's kind of all my thoughts on Moto Two so far. Yeah, all right, let's move on to GP then. Yeah, uh, so I, I guess I have to put this out for him because when I'm watching GP with Dad, if if he hasn't seen the start of the race, the first thing he always asks is, "Where's Rossi at?" You know, and so this time it was like. He's at the back, dead last. And didn't he qualify almost last as well, or actually last? Uh, his qualifying was... Well, it was awful, whatever it was. It doesn't even... Uh, second if, to last. Second to last, yeah. And that's, like, where he finished. I don't even remember if he actually finished dead last. If not, he might as well have. Uh, it was just... It's just sad. I he needs to just quit and put his efforts into coaching and other things. It's just wasting time. He's he's not selling tickets to the younger fans don't even know who the fuck he is. Like I know he's a fucking legend. He is a fucking legend. But he is tarnishing that legacy, right? This is like when Michael Jordan, you know, like Michael Jordan took a break to play baseball and then he came back, right? This is if like Michael Jordan like took his break to play golf and then came back to basketball again. Like this is that level of like delusion right now. It's it's over. It's fucking over. There's not going to be a last win. There's not going to be, and there's definitely not going to be a last championship. But here's the part that's really confusing the fuck out of me is Marquez isn't coming back. So what is there there to defend? You can, he can just leave and be the greatest of all time. With how competitive it is, like within his lifetime, no one's going to win more championships. Marquez is not a threat for that anymore. Or is he waiting for Marquez to come back and suck or Marquez to just officially announce he's not coming back? That's the only thing that makes any fucking sense. But it should be obvious. And, and, and let's say Marquez does come back and he's as good as ever. Does Rossi think he's in shape to compete against that? Yeah. It's... It's long past the tasteful time to retire. It really is. I, he should have done it two years ago and he should have announced it was his last season two years ago and it would have been we would have sold out every every single race because everyone go oh it's my last chance to see rossi race and it was conceivable that like maybe he would pull out some podiums or a win once or twice two years ago it's not even conceivable now yeah he might not even get a top 10th this year It's weird. Okay. Anyway, <sighs> that 
it's sad that we have to have this conversation. But uh, so um, the Ducati's strong, strong again. Really, everyone's strong except Honda in GP this year. The Suzuki's look great. The Ducatis are running great. Some of the Yamahas are running great. I mean, obviously, there's nothing wrong with the bike. Yeah, it seems like everybody except for the Hondas is on equal footing this year. What wasn't the Aprilia in the in the top ten? Or uh, I think Aspargaro was in the top. Four at one point for a long time for a lot of laps he was he was he was in fourth place i was like like five laps in i i turned to you i was like what's going on here like because i remember in uh what was it two or three years ago i think two so this is when ianone was yeah ianone was like uh, in like a on a podium charge in uh in um philip island and everyone was losing their mind. Like, what's happening? I was like, "What? This is all going to go pear shaped. He's going to crash out, or the engine's going to blow up, or just..." So- and he kind of held there for a long time. He did. There was some fade, but this is the first time I looked at Aprilia and went, "Oh, they actually did make improvements." I mean, I don't think that. I think. The biggest issue with the Aprilia, because it's not like Aprilia make horrible bikes, but in this category, you know, in it's, they're a it's, small company. Well, yeah, they're a very small company, and from everything that we've seen about the team, especially like knowing that like Imperial Sport Bikes down in Denver, like this place that might be like five thousand square feet. No, that's a bit bigger than that. But it's it's a but it's still like a little like dealership, is like the U.S. parts supplier, like home base. Like the team is shockingly underfunded for a MotoGP team. Well, again, it's not even a factory team. Yeah, it's just this crazy team that chooses to race an Aprilia. Yeah, it's Grassini. Yeah, it's, and they just—it's not Aprilia. It's Team Grassini. They just happen to be riding this crazy Aprilia-made GP bike that I guess Aprilia made for funsies. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so, but I mean, I think the bike is—you know—the I'm sure the bike is fantastic, but like. In a prototype racing league where constant development is happening and everything is won by the thinnest of margins, like occasionally conditions will just work out for them. But at some point, the lack of constant development, the lack of like of precise tuning for each track, the lack of data and the lack of you know um like actual like uh people pouring over the data itself and a top 10 rider and a top 10 rider 
most of the time it's not going to work out. But occasionally, like, everything can just kind of come together and it can happen. It will never happen consistently until there's some money in it. Well, speaking of consistency, KTM was pulling out some some big stuff through through the middle and second half of last year. And they, I mean, it's not like anything was a huge train wreck for KTM, but they didn't really pull anything these last couple of weeks. No. I, it kind of feels like Yamaha has gotten their shit together and... Now there's no room for KTM to steal any results. A little bit, yeah. I mean, because yeah, yeah, Yamaha was no wasn't really well. A couple Yamaha riders showed up here and there last year, and Honda completely dropped out. And maybe that's just the space that KTM filled. Mm-hmm. And Yamaha's pushing them back out again now. Well, except for Rossi. But, but um, Quattararo, uh, speaking of, you know, Yamaha showing up again, solid race. I, I mean, I should have happened a lot, should have been consistent all through last season. Now we're getting hints of it again, which is nice. Well, yeah, but okay. But should we get our hopes up? Because this is what Vinales does every year. He gets our hopes up, putting in good results in the beginning of the season. And by the time we get back to Europe has just fallen off a cliff. Yeah. Well, we also haven't seen... Come to think of, you know, the only Yamaha win we've seen in, like, the last eight years was Lorenzo. So. Oh, you mean, like, for a season, for a championship? Yeah. It's been a long while since we've seen, you know, besides him and Rossi that one year when Marquez completely imploded and the Ducatis were truly dog shit. Um, We haven't really seen, um, we haven't otherwise seen a Yamaha really rise to the occasion. Yeah. I, Hmm. I mean, I, yeah, again, I, it's, it's too early in the season to say how everyone's really doing, but it looks like Yamaha has been fixing their problems so slowly. We haven't even noticed because no one's talking about like, Oh, the Yamaha bike is back. Like it's competitive again because for two or three years, the Yamaha has been the worst bike on the fucking grid. I mean, you know, just no wins, no results. The KTM was basically doing better than them for a minute there. Like new teams with not much development were giving them a run for their money left and right. It was horrible. And now we're like, oh, yeah, yeah Yamaha's back. It's it's totally not a big deal. It's happened really slowly without us realizing it. But well, I mean, the Yamaha was great last year. It's just. But it was such a riders. weird year. It was hard to tell. Yeah. Well, and also that Patronus Sprinter team just has so much money. We're wondering, like, are they are they just compensating with money? That uh, who knows. So, so there we go. Um, 
there's really nothing to say. I think about Ducati or Honda or whatever that we well, didn't except say that about Zarco is their highest scoring rider. Zarco's the the points leader. That's crazy. I yeah. Zarco is is the championship points leader right now. I buy what, what one point over Vinales. Is that right? Um. Let's see. So I think I four do, points. Well, and uh, oh, four points, even better. And I do believe that Ducati is the the leading factory in points right now. Um, what by top two riders? By top two riders, it's no the the manufacturers championship. Uh, manufacturers is top two riders, isn't it? Is it? I want to say, yeah. In which case, it's actually Yamaha. Oh. Well, it's not Honda like it often is. And it's, and well, yeah. Well, I guess the, the last like gossipy thing to say is, have we heard any more? Do we think anything more about Marquez coming back? I haven't. And if I did, I wouldn't believe it. Yeah. I, I think he's done. We we would have heard something by now about him. he would have put out some social media video. There would have been there would have been spy shots of him at the track again or something. Honestly, I don't care until I actually see him in a free practice or in a qualifier. Until I actually see him get on a bike and do something, I'm just not going to take any interest in it because like this is the weird clickbaity gossipy nonsense gossip bullshit that we've as a society gotten drawn into way too much and i'm just not going to engage yeah i'll wait till i see it okay we're at two hours now so we should we should call this one quits Mm. plus it's late and i've got to get up so early to get that trailer fucking titled um so let's say uh, the next time you hear a Nokomoto episode, um, I'm going to have pressured Swiggy into taking the YZ250F on a legit jump. And um, yeah, we'll... What are the things I say at the end of the episode? Okay, so hey, if you've made it this far, then you know what? You need to leave a rating and a review somewhere. If you just want to leave some Google feedback, just Google Motorcycle Podcast or Nokomoto Podcast, hit the little feedback bar, click on the show, and write something insane. It really doesn't matter. You can leave an uh, an Apple Podcast review. Uh, someone left one today, which was fucking epic, it said slightly less annoying than creative writing. So in your face, Jack. <laughs> that was a five star. Yeah, it's so fantastic. Uh, yeah, keep that stuff coming. Honestly, like um, Google decided to uh, recognize our logo again, bumped us up in uh, search results. So did Apple. It makes a difference, and and the uh, the downloads reflect it. So, hey, you know this is this is a much better podcast than many others it's not a great podcast but given how many dog shit podcasts there are out there 
we, you know, we're showing up. So, hey, uh, thank you in advance for doing that. If you've heard more than one episode, you know, that's just your cost of admission. Now, with that, I'll remind everyone you can send emails to contact com. We'll read emails next week and stay safe and stay tuned. You ready to do the outro swigs? Do it. Okay. And I don't want to die. I just want to ride on my motorcycle. Mm-hmm. Cold. 